statement, public pronouncements are often what make or break people. David Davis's dull speech sealed his uh, doom. Um, this year, um, everyone's asking, did Gordon do enough in his speech to secure the Labour leadership? Did Gabe, David Cameron's speech um, convert the Tories from being the nasties to the nices? Did Boris Johnson secure his political demise finally with, uh, by dissing Saint Jamie? Or did he redeem himself by calling him the, the Messiah of healthy eating? Public pronouncements actually are very important. They um, announce often the character of someone's uh, uh, life and work and they seal their uh, uh, future very often. So it was with Jesus. We've seen in the last couple of weeks uh, Luke records um, the remarkable circumstances of Jesus' birth, the announcements by angels. But now we meet the adult Jesus, the Jesus come of age, the Jesus who now for himself can announce what his life is all about. And there it is, he did it, didn't he? In that uh, um, uh, announcement that he made, beginning, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Actually, Luke heightens the tension associated with that moment by inserting afterwards that uh, the eyes of everyone, verse 20, in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. You could have hear a, heard a pin drop if they'd been invented at the time. Everybody was waiting to see what he would say in response to this Old Testament prophecy. And they're not disappointed. Jesus began, verse 21, by saying to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This Old Testament passage, he says, is my manifesto. And unlike modern politicians, he's not particularly appealing for votes. He doesn't need the approval of people to implement this manifesto. He is simply stating a fact. He is appointed by God to achieve what has been promised long ago. The passage actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 in which an unknown voice proclaims that he is anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And that proclamation in turn was actually modelled on something even older, on an Israelite law that had, that had fallen into disuse by uh, Isaiah's day. Every 50 years the Israelites were supposed to um, um, uh, release all of their Israelite slaves. They were supposed to give back any land that they'd acquired to the families that they had acquired it from and everyone would be free and basically equal. That great year that happened once in a lifetime was called the year of Jubilee. But um, Israel had virtually completely in its history, failed to um, implement that law. Not surprisingly, rich people don't like giving away their money and their slaves. Um, but in Isaiah 61, uh, Isaiah 
promises that one day there will be someone who will implement that great era of freedom, that great era of equality, that great era of peace. And it won't actually be just um, a, 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 a sort of ordinary political implementation. No, this will have miraculous overtones to it. Not only will the slaves go free, but the blind will see. That was the history that led up to this moment. When Jesus sat down, because you did sit down to, to uh, teach in those days, he sat down, everyone's eyes were fixed on him, and he said, Today, this is fulfilled. This morning, we're going to unpack then what this tells us about Jesus' ministry. And then we're going to see actually at some length what that tells us about our ministry that God has called us to. What then is Jesus' manifesto all about? Well, we've already begun to notice um, one aspect of it. It's time. Today, says Jesus. In the past, you've been looking forward to that day. In the past, you've only had the prophecies of the Old Testament to assure you that one day this great day of Jubilee will come. But now, he says, it is arrived. It is today. And, he says, I have the resources to be able to implement it. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me, says uh, Jesus. Jesus has received a special anointing from God. And just... um, uh, back in chapter 3, we've jumped over it for our, our survey of Luke's Gospel. We have seen at Jesus' baptism how the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form on Jesus, in the, in, the, in the form of a dove. And he was empowered by God's Spirit. God's Spirit drove him out into the desert to, uh, uh, where, where he could be tempted and can refine his vision for his ministry. God's Spirit brings him back to this moment. He has the resources to implement what God has long ago promised, a great year of jubilee. He also then explains, in a nutshell, what the vision for this ministry is. It's at the end of verse 18. It is to preach good news to the poor. The good news in Isaiah, that Old Testament prophecy he's quoting from, is, uh, is news of God's victory. News that God has won his great victory. News that God has defeated his enemies. We're going to see a little bit more of what that means in a moment. But uh, for now we must focus on who it's to. It's to the poor. Why on earth is that? Does God hate the rich? Is Jesus a Marxist? Well, a glance actually at Jesus' ministry later, later, later on will realise that he, he doesn't by any means dismiss the rich out of hand. He was 
as happy to help a Roman centurion or a wealthy tax collector as he was a blind beggar. Matthew, in his Gospel, makes it plain what Jesus is uh, talking about. Jesus is looking for those who are poor in spirit, for people who are not proud, for people who are not self-important, for people who are humble enough to listen to him, to follow him, to submit to God. But Luke, Luke always maintains what um, modern people might call the, the socio-economic dimension of that statement. Um, poor in spirit, yes, certainly. But Luke simply focuses on this being a message to the poor. Because Luke is acutely conscious that you don't find many poor in spirit amongst the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. Oh, by all means, the poor people are not universally humble and poor in spirit. Far from it. There's plenty of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency amongst those who are physically poor. But people who don't have power and don't have much are in the end in a better place to humbly turn to God. So it was that Jesus more often found his friends in the bars and the brothels than he did in palaces. That is his vision. That is the focus of his attention. But then he unpacks uh, more of what that proclaiming, preaching the good news to the poor will look like. He explains not only the overall vision but the programme as he sees it. It is, says Jesus, to be a programme of setting prisoners free, of giving sight to the blind, of releasing the oppressed. In Jesus' days, you couldn't help but hear the political overtones that. The, 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 the Israelites were oppressed by the Romans. Was, he, was Jesus then going to overthrow Roman tyranny as others before him had tried to do, actually quoting from this very same verse? Now Jesus, as he begins to set about his ministry though in Luke's Gospel, will make it plain, plain that revolutionary though his claims are and his programme is, it is a revolution of a different kind. In one sense, it's less ambitious. He is going to raise no army against the Romans. He, is, he carried no sword himself. He campaigned for no office and held no office. But you see, in another sense, actually his revolution was going to be far more profound. He really did make the blind see. But more than that, he made those who could not see the truth see. He opened the eyes of people's hearts. He set people free from the oppression of the forces of evil. Sometimes those were manifested um, dramatically in demons that he cast out. Sometimes those were manifested in... Uh, 
addictions and enslaved behaviour that people had. But he set them free. He set people free from the prisons of their own hearts. Greedy tax collectors joyfully started giving away their money. Guilt-ridden prostitutes wept for joy with Jesus because they were forgiven. Lonely social outcasts came home to their heavenly Father and felt all of heaven rejoicing. This was the program of Jesus. He didn't fight the Romans, frankly, because they were small fry. They were an irrelevance. He was after the big issues, the universal issues, that enslave people. And he set them free. That is, then, Jesus' manifesto. And it is a manifesto that would take him finally to the cross. Because finally to set people free, he needed to pay for their sins. He needed to die himself, personally, to take the punishment for our sins. So that those words of forgiveness, those assurances that he was given people that they never need to face the consequences of their sins before God could be absolutely confirmed because God the Son has paid for them. And finally, that manifesto would actually take him from the grave to resurrection life. So that people could know that those assurances that he gives us, that one day actually we all will rise and those who have had their sins forgiven will be, will, will be given resurrection life where they are reunited with God, where they never have any pain or any mourning, where they live forever in new resurrection bodies. But that was as true as anything that has ever been said in history. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and proved it. Finally, the blind will see. We bear, we do not see God now. But then we will. Finally, the prisoners will be set free. Finally, the oppressed will be oppressed no longer because the devil himself and all evil is banished. This is his manifesto. And when he started his ministry, he said, today, that is fulfilled. Today, I've as good as done it. Today, people start going free. But it's our manifesto too. People who have benefited from that, Christians, 
are then called actually to imitate Jesus, to follow Jesus in today's world. We are his body, says the Bible. We are his embodied presence in the world. And our manifesto is Jesus' manifesto. The time is the same. Today, yes, you see, Jesus began on that moment a period which he called today, which continues until he finally winds up history at the end of time. Today is the moment when God is setting people free. The moment when that jubilee life is becoming a reality and life after life after life around the world. Today, you were called to live today as Christians in order to implement today's ministry. What God wants to do today in this world, in this country, in this city, in your, uh, the world that you live in. And you and I also have the same resources as Jesus. That is quite extraordinary. The spirit which descended in bodily form on Jesus, we are told in Acts chapter 2, descended on all of the disciples. The initial experience was so extraordinary that it looked like tongues of fire and they spoke in many languages. But that same spirit, that same empowering spirit is promised to every believer in every generation who sets out to follow Jesus Christ. We have the same resources as Jesus to do his ministry for him. If I have a fear, actually, amongst us, as, uh, as Christians here this morning, it is, that we will, it is that we will drive ahead as a church locally with all sorts of exciting initiatives and ministries that uh, uh, we, we've, we've already been talking about this morning, but with, actually without the Spirit of God empowering us. It is sadly possible, because Christians are very resourceful, to do certain things, at least, would look quite impressive but without uh, God's empowering us at all. Some of you, you will know that I personally um, get up very early every um, Sunday morning at least to get ready for the, the day ahead and uh, almost every Sunday I find myself praying for the same thing. I find myself echoing the words of Moses as he contemplated leading Israel through the wilderness and he said to God, if you do not go with me, I will not go up from this place. And uh, I have to tell you, there, there are days of real struggle for me on Sunday mornings. It's not the thought of a hard day's work, it's the thought of handling the word of God. It is a thought that I must speak uh, uh, later in the day in a way that honours the glory and majesty and love and compassion of Christ. When I know I am so weak and inglorious and so hard-hearted. But I've actually learned to be, frankly, a little bit stroppy with God. In a reverent sort of way, I hope, as Moses was. 
and I sit in my little armchair and I say, I'm not going to leave this study until I bet you God. And, and uh, sometimes I actually do rehearse in my mind what it's going to be like at uh, 10.30 when I haven't turned up. Because God hasn't turned up. It's not a game though. It's deadly serious. I can tell you I have never had to stay in that armchair until after half past ten. And sometimes there have been exhausting times of repentance for the sins of that week. You know, sometimes I, I frankly have got very close to the wire. Sometimes um, I have wet tears, frankly. Because I know I must bring my sins before God and ask for his forgiveness or I could never stand up here. But always God has met me. Always God has helped me. Sometimes dramatically, sometimes quietly. And I have become more and more determined as the years go by. I will not minister except that I know God is with me. And I pray that will be our life as a church together as well. Maybe we'll have to abandon doing some things. Maybe we'll have to be penitent. At the moment I don't think we have a viable just looking group, you know. And it's not it's not for lack of people out there in the world who one way or another have some openness, at least enough openness to come and discuss it. Perhaps it's for lack of the Spirit really empowering us. Maybe there is some penitence, some tears to weep, The resource we have to minister in the name of Christ is the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, assuring us of God's forgiveness, assuring us of God's presence, empowering us to act and speak for him. And we must not take a step unless he is with us. Are you serious about that? And we have the same vision as well as Jesus. To preach the good news to the poor. Now let's let's be absolutely clear on this. God's church never in history has been made up only of the, the economically poor, except perhaps in a few unusual circumstances. The first apostles were, were, were frankly businessmen and professionals. Peter owned several fishing boats. Matthew was a well-to-do tax collector. Luke, who writes this gospel, was a doctor. Paul was an academic. Social historians have analysed, actually, the, 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 the rest of the names that we get 
in the New Testament. There's lots of them mentioned around and they've, they've shown that overwhelmingly those names tend to be the names of people in the sort of middle rank of society. More recently in the 16th and uh, 17th century in, in this country, um, the um, uh, Bible-believing churches and Christians uh, in this country tended to describe themselves often as, as middling sort of folk, as they called themselves. Or in the 18th century, the Great Revival under Wesley and Whitfield was again amongst middling folk with, a, with more of an emphasis on that occasion amongst the, the really poor, the working people in the mines and the, and the factories. Characteristics of all of those churches, though, was that they freely associated with poor people amongst themselves. Indeed, they recognised that God's particular compassion is for the poor, for the oppressed, for the downtrodden. They looked socially, if you want to, if you want to put, put, put it this way, they looked downwards, not, not, not snootily, but they looked in terms of their ministry towards those who were in the lower, lower rungs of the ladder, the lower echelons of society. Because they saw a God who has compassion on such people. In the 19th century, actually, something happened in British Christianity which is still with us. We've already mentioned William Wilberforce this morning, a great man with a magnificent compassion for the poor and the oppressed. But he actually had another um, project in his life which was as, as important to him. In fact, he spent more time on it than, than, uh, uh, than releasing the slaves. It was to make Christianity acceptable to the upper middle classes. He called it the Reformation of Manners. And he was substantially successful. And in the short term, that had massive benefits for the, for the poor because he persuaded the people of power to actually, uh, to actually pass laws which abolished slavery and so on. But after his death, in the long run, actually the church became obsessed with being respectable. There was, a, uh, there was a rush from all branches of the church to, to, to establish themselves as a respectable part of society. Actually, interesting, in the 20th century, um, that was, uh, I, I suspect, entirely unwittingly um, um, continued um, by the wonderful success of university Christian unions. People of my age and older, in that, in that generation, uh, only about 15%, the top 15% of uh, British society went to universities. And uh, those universities were magnificently successful at presenting the gospel. Actually, particularly in the top 1 or 2%, Oxbridge. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a beneficiary of that myself. I became a Christian in, the, uh, in Cambridge from a, uh, from a non-Christian background. But entirely unwittingly, I think, it sort of flooded the market with well-educated and well-heeled Christians. And um, uh, today, especially conservative evangelicalism, such as uh, we, we represent in, the, in this 
church. Some, some other branches of the church have done better. But we're far too posh. Luke's strategy with rich Theophilus is something we need to learn. No, Luke was prepared to devote uh, a whole gospel to this rich man. He wasn't, he wasn't uninterested in evangelising Theophilus. But again and again and again, he does entirely the opposite of what William Wilberforce did. Rather than assure Theophilus that he can be a respectable Christian, Luke rubs Theophilus' nose in Jesus' agenda again and again and again. Jesus is focused on the poor, Theophilus. Hear that. You can only become a Christian if you see yourself as poor, Theophilus. If you're to join these Christians, you will be mixing with the poor, Theophilus. Indeed, in church, Theophilus, you won't be their master, you won't be their benefactor, you won't be their superior, you will be their brother, Theophilus. If you are to follow Jesus, Theophilus, you must have a heart, Theophilus, for what Jesus has a heart for. The poor. I mean, let me say, Oxbridge, fellow Oxbridge graduates, there's a place for us in God's church. There's a valuable place. I mean, frankly, Luke, Luke and Acts together make up about a third of the, of the New Testament. Did you know that? And they're personally um, devoted to writing to member of the upper echelons of society. Such people uh, the New Testament gives attention to. But our role is not to, uh, and not in fact, to enjoy respectable status but to embrace a marginal status and to accept the disrespect and the uh, uh, remarks and the suspicion that comes on us as we care for those who also are marginalised. I am, I am increasingly convinced, I cannot say this too strongly, I am increasingly convinced that it is a vital, a central thing that God's church in this country needs to get right, needs to see, needs to live. We are far too actually isolated from the, from, from the vast numbers of people who actually have never heard the gospel, don't know the first thing about it and feel that they never could. Because church is so strange. God's church is in real danger of becoming an isolated, compromised club for the elite. And we can be different. We can make a difference. This church is full of able people. You can devote your life in the way that Theophilus was called to devote his life to imitating Jesus.
And what's the programme? Well, I wish we had uh, the ability to do the miracles that Jesus does. We do not, by and large. Some people uh, take that as a, as a cue to saying that actually the programme now must withdraw to only being about preaching the good news about Jesus. I'm not so sure. I think the characteristic of Jesus' life needs to be the characteristic of our life. And uh, after declaring his manifesto, he was out there, hands on, with the people, touching the lepers, feeding the poor, healing the sick. And that is our ministry. That is our, our, our God-given ministry as we go to work. To now live for Jesus. To now actually, hands on, being Jesus' hands and feet. Caring for people, doing our job well as to the Lord, being different in the workplace. And when we get the opportunity, when people ask us questions, when, oh God, God, uh, um, give us the, the crowds that Jesus had who gathered around him as he cared for people, when we get the opportunity to speak, then we speak. And that's what our, our, our life about is about as a church as well. Now, there is more emphasis on proclaiming the good news as we, as we gather a, a, as a church. But we cannot totally um, um, separate that and say that in the workplace we, uh, uh, we live practically for God and in church we only proclaim Jesus Christ because sooner or later the church then will become a hard-hearted talking shop. So as a church, corporately as well, we need to model that. That's what we're doing with the building. You see, we've said, well, we can no longer fit in the building. Let's make a virtue out of that. Let's make it into a useful tool for the local community. Let's, let's feed people as well as tell them the gospel. Let's provide um, an, a nice place for people, pe- people to gather. Let's, let's show the love of Christ through that building. Let's do it in other ways. Let's start the comfort trust and, uh, and let's, let's then bodily enact God, Christ's love for people through, through that trust. If you haven't heard about it, find out more. Um, let's actually live like Jesus. As the blind began to see, as the oppressed were set free. Let's live it. Let's speak it. Let's do both together. That's the manifesto that Jesus gave us. And it is the most extraordinarily exciting manifesto that we could have. And don't underestimate the difference that you can make as an individual, that we can make as a small group of people as we really grasp that and see it and live it, as we pray seriously for the Spirit of God to empower us and help us, as we see the, the direction of Jesus' vision to care for the people whom God cares for, as we see the programme, which is to care for people and set them free in any way that we can, 
disappearing. Another church had started um, uh, debt advising for people who find themselves poor. Six couples have become Christians so far through that ministry. How I long to see us getting involved in those sorts of things and standing for Christ and the liberty that he one day will give us in all its fullness as we are brought into the new heaven and the new earth where there is no longer any mourning, no longer any crying, no longer any poverty for the glory of the nations is found there and we are free.